I think you all know me. I'm Clark Urban. Thank you very much for being here on this crisp pre-Thanksgiving Sunday morning. I'm so pleased to introduce this morning's speaker, a professor at George Washington University, David Silverman. Professor Silverman's areas of expertise are, as we were just discussing, needless to say, the history of Native Americans, but also colonial and revolutionary America in general, the early modern world, and imperialism and colonialism. His most recent book, and the subject of this morning's talk, of course, is This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving. He's also the author of many other important books, including, for example, Faith and Boundaries, Colonists, Christianity, and Community Among the Wampanoag Indians of Martha's Vineyard, 1600 to 1871. And he is also the recipient of numerous major awards, including one from the New York Association of History. Professor Silverman earned his PhD in history from Princeton. And with that, please join me in welcoming Professor David Silverman. Thank you, Professor. Thank you all for being here. I, I have to admit, I've never given a public talk this early in the morning. Uh, so. <laughs> Even this late in my career, there are some firsts. I'm honored to be here and, and genuinely appreciate the invitation. Um, just a, a preliminary remark before I um, get into this formal talk. Um, in my book title and in this talk today, you, you'll encounter me using the term Indians. And I realize that that term is jarring to some people uh, nowadays. Um, we all know Indian is a misnomer because we're not in India, right? Um, Nevertheless, in the, in the course of many years of, of writing about indigenous America, I've always conducted outreach to, to the descendant communities whose ancestors I'm writing about. And in the course of those interactions, I found that most Native Americans, certainly not all, but most, prefer the term Indians when referring to them in the aggregate, though almost to a person they prefer tribal names when it's possible to use them. And so it's out of, out of deference, not indifference, that I'm using this term. I should also note that uh, one of my uh, Wampanoag colleagues who's at Brookings um, recently called my attention to some surveys from Indian country that suggest this opinion might be shifting. Um, and when it does, I will too. Um, so I just want to make that clear. So for generations, Americans have been telling themselves a patriotic story of the supposed first Thanksgiving that treats colonization as a consensual, bloodless affair. In this tale, the pilgrims, as we call them, religious dissenters from England, cram aboard the Mayflower to brave the stormy Atlantic in search of freedom of conscience in America. These sea-tossed adventurers land off Cape Cod with a copy of their proto-constitution, the Mayflower Compact, and after some fruitless exploring and brief confrontations with the natives, decide to found their settlement up the coast at a place they call Plymouth. Yet the future of the colony is very much in doubt during its first couple of months, because the Indians, rarely identified by tribe in the traditional telling, on whom the English know they must depend for food and protection, seem to be at best wary and shy, and at worst, hostile. However, eventually the natives reach out to the newcomers through the interpreters Samoset and Squanto. The story sidesteps the obvious question of how these figures manage to learn English, which I'm happy to explain, uh, nor does it explain why the natives suddenly became so friendly. The native's chief, Usamequin, 
who the English know by his title, Massasoit, even agrees to a treaty of alliance with the English. Over the spring and summer, the natives feed the pilgrims and teach them how to plant corn and where to fish, whereupon the colony begins to thrive, or at least survive. That fall, the two parties seal their friendship with the famous first Thanksgiving. The peace that follows permits colonial New England, and by extension, a modern America to become blessed seats of freedom, democracy, Christianity, and plenty. As for what happens to the Indians next, the story has nothing to say. The Indians' legacy in this telling is to present America as a gift to white people, or in other words, to concede to colonialism, like Pocahontas and Sacagawea, the other famous Indians of early American history. They help the colonizers and then move off stage. The Wampanoags, who are the Indians in this drama, have long contended that this tale is not history, but, but a myth that sugarcoats the viciousness of colonialism for Native people. And my book and this talk today reckons with this uncomfortable assertion and its implications. For instance, in traditional accounts of Thanksgiving, the pilgrims step onto Plymouth Rock and into a new world or wilderness when in fact human civilization in the Americas was every bit as rich and ancient as in Europe or anywhere else on the globe. History did not begin for the Wampanoags with the arrival of the Mayflower. This is not a division between prehistory and actual history. They already had a dynamic past, countless generations old, that shaped who they were and what they did. In other words, they inhabited an old world. And the so-called wilderness in which the English arrived was full of villages, roads, cornfields, historic monuments, cemeteries, and forests cleared of brush by controlled burns, all by native design. And it's not just the Wampanoag's ancient history that changes our perspective. Their recent history mattered too. Though the Thanksgiving myth implies that the arrival of the Mayflower initiated a first encounter, in fact, it was just one in a string of bloody meetings between the Wampanoags and Europeans since 1524, so almost a century of such contacts, particularly from 1602 onward when these became regular affairs. The Thanksgiving myth portrays the Wampanoags as timid and overawed by the pilgrims, but I showed that the Wampanoags were easily the stronger party, easily, during Plymouth's early years. The English did not dictate to the Wampanoags. Instead, the Wampanoags initially used Plymouth Colony as a pawn in domestic and intertribal affairs. You might be disappointed to learn, and many of my readers and listeners are, that the celebrated first Thanksgiving feast actually played a minor role in this relationship. It's effectively a non-event to, uh, to the contemporaries. Far more influential were a series of, of other less palatable episodes filled with violence and power politics. I also submit that our emphasis on the nearly 50 years of formal peace after the supposed first Thanksgiving and its associated treaty of 1621 elides the more important point, that the Wampanoags came to resent the colonists' aggressive and often underhanded expansion. The truth is this, 
that the English and the Wampanoags nearly came to blows repeatedly during that supposed long peace, culminating in the terrible, bloody King Philip's War of 1675-76. Most histories that bother to include the Wampanoags usually end with this war, but my book contends that accounting with the Thanksgiving myth as a myth requires tracing Wampanoag struggles with colonialism through the centuries right up to the present day. Long-term historical perspectives like these I think are especially urgent. As our America grapples with new manifestations of white nationalism, while at the very same time, indigenous Americans in New England, indeed in Virginia, and all across the country are reasserting their political, economic, and cultural sovereignty. So to explore these themes, I'm going to focus this talk here around two Wampanoag counter-narratives to white people's triumphalist histories spread across the centuries. And our first revisionist historian is none other than the Wampanoag sachem, or chief, Pometacom, better known to history as King Philip. In the late spring of 1675, more than 50 years after his father, Usamequin, or Massasoit, had greeted the pilgrims, Pometacom sat down to speak to a delegation of English magistrates from the colony of Rhode Island. The Rhode Islanders were there to encourage the sachem, or chief again, to agree to a peaceful arbitration of the Wampanoag's mounting differences with Plymouth Colony. Yet Pometacom had already resolved to fight and agreed to this conference simply to explain why. Let's consider what he said that day. And I'm grateful as a historian that we actually have a transcript of this conversation because, I believe, the Lieutenant Governor of Rhode Island spoke Wampanoag and could record, um, tells you something about Native people's importance. Pometacom said that he viewed the history of Wampanoag-English relations as little more than the colonists' failure to live up to the 1621 alliance. The sachem recalled that when the pilgrims arrived at Plymouth more than a half century earlier, his father, Usamequin, and I quote here, was as a great man, and the English as a little child. Pometacom contended that his father could have wiped out the infant colony if he had wished, but instead, he held back its many native enemies, including Wampanoags, fed the starving colonists, and granted them land. Now, Pometacom conveniently left out that his father had made this decision less out of altruism than a need for allies. The Wampanoags had suffered a terrible epidemic disease, I think it was smallpox, but it's hard to say, between 1616 and 1619, whereupon their Narragansett rivals to the West, who had not contracted the disease, took advantage of their weakness to begin subjugating them. But generally, Pometacom was correct that Plymouth would have become yet another in a long string of English lost colonies if it hadn't been for Wampanoag largesse. And how did Plymouth show its gratitude decades later, now that it had become the great man? Pometacom denounced that in English courts, and I quote, if 20 honest Indians testified that an Englishman had done them wrong, it was as nothing. And if but one of their worst Indians testified against any Indian suspected by the English, that was sufficient. Furthermore, 
the English had begun to interfere in criminal matters between Wampanoags within Wampanoag territory, including recently execu executing three of Pometacom's leading men for the assumed assassination of a Christian Wampanoag who had been leaking Wampanoag intelligence to the English. Pometacom railed, and I quote again, that whatever was only between Indians and not in English townships, they would not have us prosecute. About half the Wampanoags, mostly on Cape Cod and the islands of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, had adopted Christianity and sworn off Pometacom's leadership, including the responsibility to pay him tribute, fearing no reprisal because by virtue of their Christianity, they now enjoyed English protection. And there were other issues. The English used land deeds, some fair, some foul, to claim Wampanoag land for their own exclusive use under their own exclusive jurisdiction. Well, this ran contrary to the natives' expectation that their land sales merely conveyed permission for the English to settle among them and abide by their customs. Or in other words, for the English to become part of Wampanoag society. When native people resisted, colonists flooded the contested tracks with livestock and slapped any Indians who injured the four-legged trespassers with trumped up criminal fines and lawsuits. The point was to force holdout natives to concede to the English interpretation of these sales. Such machinations gave the colonists, as Pometacom put it, 100 times more land than now the king, meaning Pometacom himself, had for his people. To the Wampanoags then, English law was but a shakedown by people with short memories and thin loyalty. The Rhode Islanders, seeing where this conversation was headed, cautioned Pometacom that it would be suicidal for the Wampanoags to resort to arms because they said the English were too strong for them. In that case, the sachem retorted, then the English should do to them, the Wampanoags, as they did when they were too strong for the English. In other words, he called on the colonists to assume the role of the great man by acting with generosity, restraint, and justice toward the Wampanoag little child. And that's where this talk ended, because both sides understood that this wish was futile. Just days later, Pometacom led a Wampanoag force against nearby English towns, prompting a war that would engulf the region and ultimately break the back of indigenous power in southern New England. This conflict is the most basic feature of the English-Wampanoag relationship that the Thanksgiving myth studiously ignores. Initially, Wampanoag resistance fighters got the best of it by sacking exposed English settlements and ambushing troops on the march. Furthermore, soon they had broad support from other native people, from Nipmucks, Narragansetts, Pocumtucks, and Sokokis, whom the colonists turned into enemies by repeatedly violating their neutrality. The warring Indians took advantage of these missteps to take upwards of 3,000 English lives and destroy 16 colonial towns. Eventually, however, the resistance collapsed. Largely, not entirely, but largely, and this is a hard aspect of history, I think, for everyone, because other native people threw in their lot with the English. In February 1676, the Mohawks, the easternmost nation of the Five Nations Iroquois or Haudenosaunee people, 
as a gesture of alliance to the young English colony of New York, drove Pometacom's winter camp away from Dutch and French gun merchants on the Hudson River and eastward back into the teeth of English forces. Also lying in wait alongside the English were the Mohegans and Pequots of Connecticut and Christian Wampanoags from Cape Cod, who under duress, to be sure, had sided with the colonies from the beginning and were just as adept in forest warfare as the resistance fighters. Meanwhile, the warring Indians were stalked by hunger and disease as they lived on the run, away from their cornfields and fishing stations. Consequently, by the late spring of 1676, growing numbers of them began to accept a late English offer of quarter in exchange for switching sides. Others avoided this terrible choice, and it really is an awful one, by escaping to the upper Hudson River Valley or Canada, where they built new lives. But most of them never made it that far. By June 1676, native prisoners of the English were telling them that Pometacom was, and I quote, ready to die, for you have now killed or taken all his relations and nearly broke his heart. Those relations included his wife, Watuna Kanuski, and their son, we don't know his name, who colonists captured and sold into the horrors of Caribbean slavery. They were but two of an estimated 2,000 native people who the English sentenced to slavery, and not only in New England, but throughout the Atlantic world. Some of these poor souls had surrendered based on promises of mercy, only to discover that the terms were harsher than colonial officials had pledged. Worse still, some surrendering natives discovered too late that colonial authorities would not spare any native life if they suspected that person of having taken an English life during the conflict. Massachusetts, Plymouth, and Rhode Island held public executions throughout the summer and fall of 1676, including 50 hangings on Boston Common alone, something that site has yet to acknowledge. The English even exacted retribution on the dead. On August 6th, colonial forces found the drowned body of Weedamu, a female sachem and war leader, and the sister of Pometacom's wife. Authorities ordered her head to be severed and piked next to a holding pen full of Wampanoag prisoners. The captives, according to English accounts, made a most horrid and diabolical lamentation, crying out, it was their queen's head. A few days later, Medicom was dead too, shot down by a Christian Indian the English called Alderman. Filled with a vengeful spirit, Plymouth's captain, Benjamin Church, had the sachem dismembered and his head sent to Plymouth. And right there, on the very site where the supposed first Thanksgiving took place, where his father had feasted with the pilgrims, authorities mounted their grisly trophy outside the town gate and left it there to rot for 20 years. It might have been the last thing that Pometacom's wife saw when Plymouth shipped her into West Indian slavery. I think we can all agree here. This is about as contrary to the Thanksgiving myth as it gets. Though history rarely pays attention to the Wampanoags after King Philip's War, my book emphasizes that this conflict was just the first stage in a centuries-long struggle to defend their land and sovereignty. It should come as no surprise that the English seized nearly all of the Wampanoags' land in the years after the war, 
leaving only a handful of town-sized reservations for mostly Christian Indians, and some of them still exist. Less well-known is that the colonists also seized the Wampanoags as bound laborers. From the late 1600s through the early 1800s, white merchant creditors, courts, and government-appointed guardians colluded to force the Wampanoags and their children into indentured servitude to white farmers, householders, and whaling merchants, with the terms typically lasting several years, but sometimes even decades. So many Wampanoag children ended up as servants to the English that few Wampanoags could speak their natal language by the early to mid-1800s. For such reasons, in 1836, William Apis, a Pequot who served as preacher to the Mashpee Wampanoags of Cape Cod, wrote what he called a eulogy on King Philip, in which he proposed that Massasoit's welcome to the pilgrims was a grave mistake. Therefore, he contended, Indians should treat every December 22nd, the anniversary of the, the pilgrims' landing in Plymouth, and every 4th of July as, and I quote, days of mourning and not joy. Let them rather fast and pray to the Great Spirit, the Indian's God, who deals out mercy to his red children and not destruction. Despite unyielding assaults on their communities, the Wampanoags stubbornly persisted, which Massachusetts addressed in the late 1860s and 1870s by dissolving their reservations of Mashpee, Herring Pond, Gayhead, Chappaquiddick, and Christiantown. The state divided the common lands of these places into private property tracts, subject to confiscation for debt and unpaid taxes, and declared the inhabitants to be full-fledged citizens and no longer Indians, as if the two were antithetical. White officials refused to listen to Wampanoags, who protested that this supposed gift of citizenship was actually a Trojan horse to rob them of their remaining land and force them to scatter. And that was the point. White proponents of this measure, at their more honest moments, said that they considered the Wampanoags to be too racially intermixed to be considered Indians any longer, and that in any case, it was the manifest destiny of Native people to vanish. And over the next century, Americans did everything they could to make that supposedly natural process occur, including reducing Native people to romantic bit parts in the country's history, as exemplified by the Thanksgiving myth. Let me emphasize here, throughout the colonial era, throughout the 1600s, throughout the 1700s, even into the 1800s, Thanksgiving had no association with pilgrims and Indians. No one made that connection. The link between the holiday and that history appears to date to 1841, when the Reverend Alexander Young published a primary source account of a 1621 harvest feast hosted by Plymouth Colony and attended by neighboring Wampanoags. To it, the, the editor, Young, added an influential footnote. And trust me, as a historian, there aren't a lot of influential footnotes out there. This is one of them. And, and this is what it read. He said, this was the first Thanksgiving, the Harvest Festival of New England. Well, this primary source account was so widely read that orators like John Quincy Adams and Ralph Waldo Emerson began to disseminate this idea until Americans took it for granted. Now, predictably, New Englanders were the first to tout 
the pilgrims as founding fathers and their dinner with Indians as a template for Thanksgiving. But for the rest of the country to go along, the nation first had to subjugate the tribes of the Great Plains and Far West. Only then could white Americans stop vilifying Indians as bloodthirsty savages and give them an unthreatening role in a national myth. This saga also took hold because it had use in the nation's culture wars. It was no coincidence that the Pilgrims emerged as founders amid widespread anxiety that the United States was being overrun by immigrants. In this case, Catholics from Ireland and Germany. They were supposedly unappreciative of the country's Protestant democratic origins and values. The Thanksgiving myth would teach them otherwise. Additionally, treating the pilgrims as the epitome of colonial America served to minimize the country's record of racial oppression past and present. Better to highlight the pilgrims' religious and democratic principles instead of the Indian wars and slavery more typical of colonies, including those in New England. Through such means, Northeasterners could define the so-called black and Indian problems as Southern and Western exceptions to an otherwise inspiring national heritage. So what I'm saying here is that though Americans today widely assume that Thanksgiving has been associated with pilgrims and Indians since 1621, this tradition is very much the product of white Northeastern Protestants in the 19th century asserting their cultural authority over European immigrants, Americans of color, and other American regions. We could call it revisionist history. But this invention became tradition by the late 19th and early 20th century, and has remained so in no small part through American schools holding annual Thanksgiving pageants, in which students dress up as pilgrims and Indians to reenact the first Thanksgiving. I myself, I grew up in Massachusetts. I remember participating in one such performance. I, I was cast as a tree, by the way, uh, so it ended my acting career before it even began. Um, but in it, we sang My Country Tis of Thee. And let's think about that song, right? We praised America as a sweet land of liberty and the pilgrims as my fathers, mine. The point of this exercise was to have a diverse group of school children learn about who we as Americans are, or at least who we're supposed to be. Even students from ethnic backgrounds would be instilled with the principles of representative government, liberty, and Christianity, while learning to identify with the English as fellow white people. Leaving Indians outside the category of my fathers also carried important lessons. It was yet another reminder about which race ran the country and whose values mattered. Well, by 1970, Frank James, our second Wampanoag revisionist historian, had reached the limits of his patience with this nonsense. James was born and raised in the community of Aquina, or Gayhead, on Martha's Vineyard, which had long ranked among the poorest communities in Massachusetts. Nevertheless, James grew up determined to succeed and represent his people. His inner drive carried him all the way to the New England Conservatory in Boston, where he studied trumpet, and then to the Nauset Regional Public Schools on Cape Cod, where he became director of music. Yet his passion was political activism and the study of history, because he knew that understanding the past was critical to reforming the present. 
and what he read in the primary sources made his blood boil because it bore little relation to the Thanksgiving myth that hung around his people's neck like a millstone. So when James was invited to speak at a state banquet celebrating the 350th anniversary of Plymouth's founding, he saw it as a rare opportunity to set the record straight. But when state officials read his speech, uh, they told him it was too inflammatory for the occasion. James, for his part, found an alternative script so childish and untrue that he pulled out of the event and decided to organize his own commemoration where there would be no censors. Inspired by the Red Power Movement for Indigenous Rights and Justice, James organized a National Day of Mourning to be held on Thanksgiving Day, 1970, at the site of the Massasoit statue overlooking Plymouth Rock. In choosing this name, James hearkened not only to National Days of Mourning held after the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King, but to William Apis's eulogy on King Philip. And like Apis incarnate, when James's moment came, he rose before protesters from all across Indian country, media, and onlookers, and delivered his inflammatory speech. He began with the poignant assertion that he had the right to the dignity of his humanity, despite society's efforts to diminish him and his people. I speak to you as a man, he stressed, a Wampanoag man. I'm a proud man, proud of my ancestry, my accomplishments won by strict parental direction. He acknowledged to his white listeners that Thanksgiving, and I quote, is a time of celebration for you, celebrating the beginnings of the white man in America. But for James and the Wampanoags, the day had doleful implications. James proceeded to tell a history of English Wampanoag relations that turned the bedtime story of the Thanksgiving myth into a nightmare. And his conclusion was that Usamequin's welcome of the pilgrims, quote, was perhaps our biggest mistake. We, the Wampanoags, welcomed you, the white man, with open arms, little knowing that it was the beginning of the end, that before 50 years were to pass, the Wampanoag would no longer be a free people. To James, like Pometicon, like Apis for that matter, the moral of the first Thanksgiving was that the English and their successors had betrayed the Wampanoags who befriended them in their time of need. And this is the message that has rung through subsequent national days of mourning, which take place at the same time, at the same place, every Thanksgiving day. As to the question of how to move forward, James's answer was to confront this history, including the fact, as he put it, that the Wampanoags still walk the lands of Massachusetts. James urged Americans to consider Native people as worthy of the same respect as everyone else. Simple proposition, I think. And if Americans followed this counsel to extend their Native countrymen and women basic compassion and acknowledgement, it would make Thanksgiving Day 1970 a new beginning toward what James called a more humane America, a more Indian America, in which Native people could, and I quote again, regain the position in this country that is rightfully ours. There are so many reasons for Americans to try to tell the history of Plymouth and Thanksgiving with three-dimensional Wampanoag people at the center. Thanksgiving is the focal point for considering the Native American role in the nation's past. 
It's bad enough to have gotten the story so wrong for so, wrong, so long. It's downright inexcusable to continue with the annual tradition of having teachers, politicians, and television producers traffic in the Thanksgiving myth and residential homes and shopping centers sport decorations of happy pilgrims and Indians. These practices dismiss Native people's very real historical traumas at white hands in favor of depicting their ancestors as consenting to colonialism. To call the consequences harmless is to ignore the chorus of Native Americans, our fellow Americans, who say that the hurt is profound, particularly to their children. In a pluralistic country, it's morally unacceptable to allow the celebration of a national holiday to damage part of the nation's people, never mind the first people, or for that matter, all the people. There's been too little public reflection about how the Thanksgiving myth teaches white proprietorship of the nation. Why should a school-aged child with the name of, say, Silverman identify more with pilgrims than Indians? After all, such a student is unlikely to descend from either group, and both groups are Silverman's fellow Americans today. If the student is taught to think of both pilgrims and Indians like a historian does, more dispassionately as they instead of we, it might be a step towards a more critical understanding of history in which all the actors can be seen as more fully human, with the virtues and shortcomings that one would expect to find in any population. At the same time, if the student is taught to think more inclusively of the historical actors as we, more fully aware of the risk of appropriation, it might be a step towards a more compassionate national culture. Boy, could we use it. If the public continues to associate pilgrim-Indian relations with Thanksgiving, and I don't think we should, the least we can do is get the story straight with Wampanoag actors and perspectives at the center. Imagine if instead of trafficking in the mythical Thanksgiving, we as a country reckoned with the story as told by Pometacom, William Apis, and Frank James. I'm not naive. The challenges are significant at multiple levels. Many Americans clearly are uncomfortable with the Native American past. It tends to turn patriotic episodes inside out and heroes into villains, or at least into deeply flawed heroes. It loosens white claims on morality and authority. It raises political and cultural questions about justice. It threatens to tear down monuments and rename buildings. But confronting this darkness also promises to shed light, to cultivate national humility, and most importantly, I think, to signal to indigenous people that the country values them as us. As one gracious Aquinnawampanoag elder once told me, we do ourselves no good by hiding from the truth. And I think she was talking about all of us. Thank you. I, I welcome your questions and comments, please. Yes, ma'am. So, a, a comment and a question. Um, I appreciated the way you started your remarks by commenting on what you, about what you named the yes. Indians or Native right. Americans or whatever. 
There's an archaeological, an Indian archaeological site in Culver County, mm -hmm. and it's called American Indian yep. Archaeological Site. And I asked the local ranger, uh, not politically correct, he said, actually, we asked the local tribe yeah, that's right. what they prefer to be that's called. Right and then build around that, so I appreciate it. Thank you. I, who, who am I to tell these folks what to call themselves, right? Exactly. It's not my role. Exactly. But a quick question. Yes. During your talk, I kept trying to get a sense of what the Indian community was like the Indians were nice to the pilgrims. They helped them. It could have been a nice event. We don't know the, the food yeah. wasn't much, but so what, what do I just tell Well, uh, could you just summarize it, um, David, for the... Yeah, she's asking, uh, how, how do you explain, explain all this to a third grader? <laughs> that, that's really what it, what it boils down to. Let me be clear about what I'm arguing and what I'm not arguing. I am not declaring war on Thanksgiving. I am not calling for a cancellation of Thanksgiving. I am not suggesting we replace Thanksgiving with a day of mourning. None of that. What I'm suggesting is that we distance this lovely ritual of getting together with family and friends and offering thanks for what's good in our lives from a false and damaging history. That's all I'm that is all I'm arguing. This material is not appropriate for a third grader. But let's be clear, colonialism was and is a bloody business. And we cannot teach the history of colonial America without Indian colonial warfare and slavery. Those are the two fundamental features of colonial America, everywhere, absolutely everywhere. If students are too young to handle it, then don't teach colonial America until they're mature enough to handle it. That, that's, you know, I'm not a childhood education expert, but it seems to me that that's the most obvious solution to this issue. Um, you just mentioned slavery again. Uh, I think most of us are aware of sort of the trajectory by which uh, enslaved people from Africa yes. uh, was abolished. Mm -hmm. uh, how and by what mechanism did the practice of uh, putting uh, Native Americans into slavery in the Caribbean uh, eventually go away? Well, not just the Caribbean, it's the entire Western Hemisphere. So, um, this is a, a fairly new body of knowledge. Um, it's been emerging over the past 15 years. Europeans were equal opportunity enslavers well into the 18th century. They enslaved indigenous people, they enslaved African people, and they did the best, but let's, let's be clear, to reduce European prisoners of war and debtors to, to a status as close to slavery as they possibly could within the limits of European law. Um, so you know, there's an, an enormous demand for labor in these colonies to produce sugar, tobacco, and, and rice. In the case of native people, the Spanish and Portuguese start the process of enslaving native people in mass. The English and the French later pick up on it. And in North America, typically the native people that the English colonists would enslave were prisoners of war. Virginia did this throughout the 17th century. New England did it throughout the 17th century. It's a widespread pattern. Up until the early 1700s, you would be just as likely in a plantation setting, for example, to find enslaved indigenous people as you would enslaved Africans. That shifts in the 18th century. It shifts for a handful of reasons. One is these colonists have to war against indigenous people to acquire these slaves, so that's a dangerous proposition. By contrast, in Africa, they're just camping on the coast and buying 
prisoners from, from local people. Um, so that's a safer bet. All, in Africa, these prisoners were available in much, much larger numbers. So economically, it was a, a more efficient transaction, um, if you will, and you have to think about it that way. Um, but let's, let's be clear, the number of these native people who were enslaved was massive. Uh, South Carolina alone enslaved upwards of 50,000 indigenous people during the late 17th and early 18th century. Most of them, let me be clear, captured from the Catholic missions of Florida. So these are baptized Christian Indians. South Carolina knows they are it's raiding these mission stations and, and enslaving these people. So their Christianity isn't even enough to protect them. In the history of colonial America, our best estimates are that upwards of five and a half million indigenous people were enslaved by Europeans hemispherically. So that includes Central and South America and the Caribbean. Five and a half million is 40% of the volume of the transatlantic slave trade. So this is not an incidental phenomenon in colonial America. It is, it is very much the norm throughout the, 5th, uh, the 16th century in Spanish areas, and then the 17th and early 18th century throughout the rest of colonial America. So what was the mechanism by which this died out? I mean, you know, with enslaved Africans, Right. Africans started to, be, to become available as, for slave purchase in such numbers and at such low cost that it was, it was no longer worth stoking uh, conflicts with native people uh, when they could, they could just buy, buy these uh, Africans in chains and not run that risk. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Do you ever see a political landscape in America where you can tell the story of the real Indians and the story of Thanksgiving and there'll be a reconciliation between America's past. Um, yes. And America's past um, fellowship with Indians or lack thereof and then coming to a good fruition, and how will that happen? Well, I don't think we'll get to that point without a lot of kicking and screaming, clearly. <laughs> As anybody who's been following the news knows. Yeah. But look, you invited me to be here. This is an audience of mostly white people. The Museum of the Bible, those are not my people. They invited me to come and speak about this, and we're quite receptive to that. That encourages me. I've spoken to mostly, not entirely, but mostly white audiences across the country who are open to hearing this message. Now, I'm not naive. There's also a lot of white people who are not open to hearing this message at all. It will show up with pitchforks outside my house if they know where I live. Um, but the, re the reason that response is so shrill is because they're losing. They're losing. This scene here terrifies reactionaries in this country. They don't want us to know the truth about history. They want us to... to live awash in myth. And the reason is because the truth will provoke change. So let's have the battle. The truth, the truth is on my side <laughs> in, in this fight. And I will, I will go to the mat with anyone who wants to contest my interpretation of, of these events. So I ask the question, do you really want to live your life immersed in lies? And so I think the answer in some, question, in some cases, yes, yes, absolutely. But most of us don't. And most of us, when we know better, change. 
Um, and so, you know, it's, it's going to be an ongoing fight. I don't think it will, you'll ever have perfect unanimity on these issues. Um, but we are getting there. I cannot think of a better concluding question and a better concluding answer than that. <laughs> <laughs> sure.